0: Begs the question. January 29th, 2024. Introduction. Let us begin by acknowledging that it is not good or appropriate to take decades of faithful ministry and gospel preaching in order to wad it up and throw it away, and to do this over a few unfortunate, albeit erroneous, comments. It is important to maintain perspective. You should never throw out a good man's entire ministry just because he wants to say that under certain conditions it would be appropriate to attend a tranny wedding. And so that is why Alistair Begg shouldn't have done that. The people who have appreciated his ministry for years and who have expressed dismay over this incident are not the ones doing that. This was an unforced error on Alistair's part and not the result of a bunch of carping Christians. There may be a handful who are rejoicing in this event as a proof of whatever it is they have been maintaining, but they are people who have their own issues. But, however, truth be told, those folks always did have their own issues. In case you are wondering, I'm not going to use this space in order to yell at Alistair. I do, however, want to explain the difference between what he thinks he is doing and what he is actually doing. There is a subtlety here, but it is not the kind of subtlety that justifies anything. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Genesis 3.1 But mark this, I am not saying that Alistair is a serpent. I am saying that the serpent dunked on him here. To recap. If you are just now joining us, in a recent interview, Alistair Begg recounted a conversation he had with a grandma who was wondering if she should attend her grandson's wedding, in which he was getting married to a transgender person. A fuller account of all that is here. After controversy blew up over that comment, some days later, Alistair refused to walk anything back. He stood by his comments, and so here we are. From the accounts I have seen, we are not exactly sure what we are dealing with, but it is bent however you look at it. Either the grandson was marrying a woman who pretends to be a man, in which case the marriage itself is an actual marriage, and the homosexual delusion, pretending you are marrying a man, is still a sick delusion, or he is marrying a man who thinks he's a woman, and so you have both actual sodomy and quite a different delusion, just as broken. But for our purposes here, it doesn't really matter. The issue is the lawfulness of a Christian celebratory participation at an event that is truly dark. What Alistair thought he was doing. And when many evangelicals read Alistair's defense of his advice to the grandmother, it initially can seem quite reasonable. His questions for her show that he thinks that registering your descent from the trans lifestyle in a formal way is both necessary and sufficient. Quote, Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. But what does it mean not to countenance in any affirming way a choice to marry someone who is transgender? If your absence from the wedding registers your censorious disapproval, which Alistair argued it would, and you are taking steps to avoid that, then what you are doing in actual fact is countenancing a transgender wedding in an affirming way. If absenting an event proves something, then so does attending. Attending shows the opposite and does not demonstrate a studied neutrality approval or acceptance is what your attendance means. If it didn't mean that, there would be no difficulty if you didn't show. So the advice given by Alistair amounts to do not countenance in any affirming way except for just this once, the lifestyle choice. Alistair thinks he is simply being nice, and so he is advising the grandmother to show Christian kindness. But nobody is against loving the grandson. Suppose this grandmother had asked me something like, for years I've taken my grandson out to lunch on his birthday. Is it still all right to do that after he has married his what's-it? My reply would have been, certainly, take him out to lunch. And if the grandson had asked if he could bring his what's-it, I would encourage her to say, certainly, yet again, she needs Christ also. Grandma, you will need to start saying he needs Christ. Sorry, no can do. So the issue is not kindness, but rather approval. The issue is going along with a serious delusion. It is not a sin for a screwed up person to have a birthday, and so it is no sin to help them celebrate it. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, Mark 2.16, and so may we. But I seriously doubt if Jesus would have been willing to be the after-dinner speaker for the annual Judean shakedown banquet. Levi's birthday, fine. Levi's celebration of how he squeezed that poor widow woman until she cried over losing her house, not so fine. Now, there will be some Christians who object to my use above of what's it. They want to go back to that and discuss my callous disregard for others for a minute. They will say it is demeaning and disrespectful to write anything like that. They will continue to maintain this position until the next stage of the sexual revolution when the bipedal carbon unit in question goes a step beyond her furry stage and demands now to be addressed as a mechanical sex bot. Her pronouns are now what's it weirdo, You are somewhat relieved because you had gotten tired of serving her just a saucer of milk at Thanksgiving. You are also relieved that it is now apparently okay, according to all your soupy Christian friends, to use words like, what's it? In other words, these accommodating Christians would in fact be willing to use a demeaning reference like, what's it? Provided an unstable, untrammeled, and mentally disturbed ego demanded it. And yet, at the same time, they are unwilling to use it when a holy God, His righteous scriptures, and the whole created order demand it. All must offer a pinch of incense to the emperor of ego, and as long as you have registered your descent off-budget somewhere, as it were, you can still observe all the external pagan formalities that are being demanded of you. So despite the fact that Alistair thought that his advice was risk-taking for the sake of building bridges to those who don't understand that Jesus is a king, what he was really doing was avoiding the risk of angering the cool kids and the power brokers behind them. If Jesus is a king, and he is, then we must do what he says, and we must not care about or respond to the censures of those who will sneer and say we are being judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything, what Peter thought he was doing. Alistair Begg has been a faithful minister for many years, just as the Apostle Peter was a devoted follower of Christ. But even though Peter was a great man and a great apostle, he was still notably impetuous. He was far more influenced by the immediate circumstances than was his counterpart, the Apostle Paul. Paul was able to maintain the big picture at all times, and Peter could get carried away by his immediate circumstances more easily. When Jesus said that he was going to go to Jerusalem and there be crucified, it was Peter who stepped in impetuously and expressed two distinct sentiments that don't really go together—no Lord. Jesus then rebuked him as a Satan because his mindset was that of men, not of God, Matthew 16.23. And Peter famously and impetuously vowed that he would be with Jesus to the death, Matthew 26.35. Peter was the one who impetuously cut off the ear of Malchus, John 18.10. He was, he thought, backing up his words with deeds. And Peter, still in pursuit of what he had declared he would do, followed the arrested Jesus into the belly of the beast, John 18.16. But once there, trapped in the moment, he impetuously denied the Lord. Three times he denied Him, Matthew 26.74. The Lord, in His grace, restored him as an apostle by the Sea of Galilee, John 22.17, after asking Him three times if He loved Him one question for each denial. Peter was restored, but Peter was still Peter. Later on, he says no to the Lord three times when he was instructed in the vision to rise, kill, and eat. Acts 10:16. And so this was the man who pulled away from the Gentile Christians at Antioch when certain men from James arrived. Now, Paul saw, in a way that Peter and Barnabas did not, that the gospel was actually at stake in the seating arrangements at the Antioch potluck. That being the case, he charged both Peter and Barnabas with hypocrisy, Galatians 2.13. But what did they think they were doing before Paul's rebuke? We are told that the motivation for the hypocrisy was fear, Galatians 2.12. But how would they have justified it to themselves before they received Paul's rebuke, which they thankfully did? We do know Peter took the rebuke to heart because of how he later argued at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15.7 and following. So, how would they have justified it in their own minds before Paul's rebuke? They could easily have followed Alistair's playbook. Everyone here knows that Peter is good with Gentiles becoming Christians. He was the man who preached to Cornelius, after all. That is a given. Everybody knows where I stand. In the meantime, we need to accommodate the weaker brethren, and if they are not comfortable sitting near the Gentile tables, then we need to work with them. Does not Paul himself teach that we should become as under the law to those under the law? 1 Corinthians 9.20 They won't care how much we know until they know how much we care. But to placate these men from James like this, and incidentally, we must remember that they were not actually good representatives of James, Acts 15-24, meant relegating the Gentile believers to the back of the bus. Paul saw the implications, and Peter did not. So what they thought they were doing is not the same thing as what they were doing. Fearing what the men from James would say put them in a position of not fearing what God would say. This is the way it always goes. The temptation is always to fear those who will pitch a fit if they don't get their way. The temptation is to fear those who will make a scene. The men from James were the kind of men who would make a scene, and the transgender mafia certainly knows how to make a scene. Evangelical grandmothers who followed Alistair's ministry for decades won't make a scene. They might be a little surprised, as this woman was, but they are decent Christians and know how to stay polite. And the bad guys know this about us, come to think of it. Fortunately, Paul was there to stand up and introduce the awkward moment. Well, here we are, right spang in the middle of another one. Swap out the sin. All the issues become completely transparent if we try to see if this approach to winning a sinner is an approach that can transfer to other sins. After all, all sinners need Christ, right? Say that your brother-in-law, married to your sister for 30 years, decides to leave her for his mistress, a much younger woman who's just moved to the area six months ago. He decides to host a reception in order to introduce people to his girlfriend, who doesn't know many people yet, being new to the area. Does the metric outlined by Alistair work? You had several earnest conversations with your brother-in-law, explaining to him exactly why the divorce was wrong and unjustified, so he knows where you stand. Does that mean you go to the reception? Are you kidding me? The issue is not whether your brother-in-law knows where you stand. The question is whether or not you know where you stand. Or say that your nephew started an alt-right website that really caught fire and took off. It grew such that the traffic was really significant, and so he is now running a politically inflammatory merch warehouse with a set of offices next to it. Their organization has decided to launch a print magazine, one that would supplement the articles on the website with more in-depth reporting. The editorial policy they are seeking to advance consists of a blend of white nationalism, health and fitness advice, and they occasionally like to dabble in various hints of Holocaust denial. You have expressed your dissent, your strong dissent, in several conversations with your nephew. He knows where you stand. But they are hosting a barbecue in order to celebrate the launch of the magazine, and you receive an invitation. Do you go? Again, are you kidding me? Now, why do these examples seem so ludicrous? Why does it seem like I'm coming up with outrageous scenarios in order to jigger my point? I would simply point out and reply that out of all three of these sins, and they are all three of them big sins, the most demented one is the tranny wedding. By far. The reason it doesn't seem that way is because the sins in my two made-up examples do not currently have a culture-wide full-court press on their behalf, insisting that we all celebrate them. The adulterous man is accepted and tolerated, but society is not demanding that we celebrate him. We do not yet have a federally recognized cheat on your spouse month, you know, with a flag and everything. And while the alt-right nephew does have to deal with the full court press, it is one aimed at him, targeted against him, and is not being conducted in support of his sin. He is sinning, but he has to swim upstream to do it. Saying that Christians may attend wedding receptions in honor of perverse events is not swimming upstream. It is floating downstream, face down. And so it appears that the Alistair strategy is only effective in showing kindness to those sinners who have the full-throated support of the current culture smog. It would never be employed on behalf of those sinners who need Jesus every bit as much, but whose sins are not currently being promoted, celebrated, or advanced. Quote, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Romans one thirty two NKJV It is not just the doing of vile deeds that are a concern here. It is also the approval of them. And the devil, master of deception, is prepared to be pretty devious in how he gets Christians to believe that capitulation to the spirit of the age is somehow an exercise in risk-taking. He gets them to approve of such things in a way that provides them with some level of deniability even to themselves, especially to themselves. Alistair begs the question. Begging the question occurs when you assume what you need to prove. Alistair is assuming that attending a wedding like this would be a kind and thoughtful Christian act, because he had kind sentiments when he suggested it. And yet we are obviously at a stage of cultural disintegration where it would have to be demonstrated that this could ever be a kind thing to do. It has been somewhat heartening that so many Christians saw this problem with Alistair's advice almost immediately. The battle is actually over creational joy, and what kind of environment would be conducive to such joy? The creation ordinance that God gave us allows us to raise a glass to a man and a woman, and it enables all of us to toast and drink and laugh together. A ceremony with two men is just lame. With two women, it is simply sad. And when the trans thing is going on, everything about it is just broken. Moreover, the people involved know this down in their bones, and so they demand approval from the heteros that they so deeply despise and simultaneously envy. Some Christians have been gullible enough to believe that if we just gave them what they're demanding, that this will somehow make the ache in their throat go away. But how could it? There is a reason why the battle lines have frequently involved cake bakers, photographers, florists, videographers, and wedding planners. These are the glorifying professions. These are the professions that are supposed to make an event look good. And what is being demanded is impossible, even when someone capitulates and agrees to try. It is like assigning the best makeup artist in the world to a chimpanzee. So the intoleristas are not out in force making hardware store owners sell hammers to homosexuals. They don't need to. We are more than willing to participate in the same economy with people who don't know Christ and whose lives reflect the fact that they don't know Christ. I am willing to advise any Christian in the world to be willing to sell a lesbian couple any of the following a roast beef sandwich, a car, a book an end table, a light bulb, or a tablecloth. Evangelical bakers would be delighted to sell a homosexual couple a birthday cake. Having a birthday is fine. What we cannot give them or sell to them is our applause, or approval, or glorifying expertise, or supportive presence. And so why is it that everything is so muddled and confused? The answer, unlike the tangles that attend the question, is straightforward. Quote, they have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. Hosea 9.9 9. Just a couple of poems. If you will indulge me just a few moments more, I want to share with you a couple of poems that I wrote, taken from this book here. I do not say that these are very good poems, but I am maintaining that they are the kind of poems that those who are in flat rebellion against what they call heteronormativity cannot even aspire to write. The heart of the sexual revolution is transgressive revolt, and the one thing you can't do with transgressive revolt is mainstream it. However you try to prove your point, the round squares you try to draw for us will just wobble all over the board. That said, here they are. Propriety. Everyone knows what will happen tonight, but all politely avert the gaze, talking of all the beautiful sights, the gown and veil, how the minister prays. But later, when the couple is gone and all the trappings have been removed, man and woman will welcome the dawn with arrows embraced and arrows proved. And here's the second one, Vineyard of Vengeti. When he gives to her and she receives it with passive and gentle ferocity, he thanks his God who made their bodies fit within these laws of reciprocity. So then what appears as carnal pleasure is really far more, it is sacrifice, holy and sacred and earthbound treasure, reflecting glory. I render thanks twice, for here's the woman and here's her head, gathered in this, their tumultuous bed. If you are enjoying these videos and would like to support this channel and the work of Canon Press, join up at Canon Plus. Just click the link, create an account, and have a look around.